I want you to take your Bibles and open to Psalm 111. Psalm 111. If you weren't with us last week, you are taking a small break from our walk through the Gospel of Mark and returning to our project of working through the Psalms. And this morning we're at 111. As you turn there, let me ask you this. I wonder if you've ever known, or maybe you know someone now, who has the ability to be excited. I mean, really excited about almost anything. So they're given a gift, no matter what it is. They have 12 of them, but they love it, right? They're excited, and they want to let everyone know how fantastic this gift is. Do you know someone like that? Maybe you're like this. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I just want to acknowledge there are people like this, aren't there? People for whom everything is the greatest. Everyday, normal events, they're awesome. They're amazing. They're incredible. The breakfast I had this morning, best I've ever had. I went to the grocery store. I got a, I got a cart. It was fantastic. Took a nap out of this world. I got a call from the friend. She is the most wonderful person I have ever met. You know people like this? Positive, they enjoy life, and they are quick to give praise for anything and everything. And honestly, most of us would probably be well served to try to be a little bit more like that. We should all strive to find more joy in day-to-day aspects of our lives. I think we could even argue it's biblical. But at the same time, we're not all built that way, are we? Not all of us go through the day proclaiming everything is the best or the greatest. And it's not necessarily that we aren't joyful. It's not that we're not thankful. It's not that we don't recognize God's blessings. It's just that we're different. That's okay. Now, what in the world does that have to do with Psalm 111? Well, as we come to the psalm, we are coming to a psalm of praise. Out of 150 psalms, there are quite a few psalms that are a lot like this one. Relatively short, pretty straightforward, and the psalmist is praising God. And he's not holding anything back. Look at, look at the first verse there, just as an example. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright and in the congregation. You see this, this wholehearted, unhindered praise, and he doesn't want to keep it to himself. He wants everyone to be with him. He wants everyone to praise God together. As we go through the rest of the psalm, there's a lot of adjectives. Great, splendor, majestic, wondrous, holy, awesome. And here's how this connects to where I started. Here's my fear, which may just reveal my own things more than anyone else's, but maybe I'm not alone. My fear is that sometimes we can come to the Psalms and think, oh, I know people like this. They get excited about everything. Everything's the greatest. Everything's the best. I know people like this psalmist. And my fear is that we could read Psalms of praise and think, that's a really positive person. That person gets really excited about God. And if we're not careful... We can almost dismiss the psalms of praise as being something that comes from a certain kind of person or a certain kind of disposition. 
And this morning, I want us to consider this, that the psalms of praise aren't simply good songs for happy people. The psalms of praise should be reflective of the heart of every believer, regardless of your natural disposition. Every one of us, everyone who knows God and has been saved by him should be a person of wholehearted, deep-seated, always increasing praise. Let me say it this way. When we read the Psalms of praise, this isn't a product of someone who just happens to have a really positive disposition and likes to use adjectives and superlatives. This is a person who has seen God, has recognized what he's done, and is having an appropriate and perhaps restrained response, given that God and given what he's done. So here's our goal this morning. I want us to hear what the psalmist says with all the adjectives and all the superlatives and to consider, do I see God that way? And is my heart moved? My hope is that we'll hear what he says and that it will impact us. And for you, this may mean that when we get to the last song, your hands are raised higher and your voice is louder. Or it may not. It may mean that your head is bowed in quiet prayer. The way we show praise isn't as important. The question is, where's our heart? So let's go to the psalm. Let's hear what he has to say about God and consider his praise. Psalm 111. Hear the word of God. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart and the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work and his righteousness endures forever. God has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just and all his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. God sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who practice it have good understanding. His praise endures forever. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. It's our prayer that God would bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Now, before we jump in, I, I want to make a couple of notes about the structure of the psalm. And like I said, I, I always feared that this would be more academic than it should be, but there is something you should know about the psalm in that it's, it's an acrostic. What does that mean? It means that every line in the psalm begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and it starts at the beginning and it goes to the end. There's 22 lines in the, or excuse me, letters in the Hebrew alphabet, 23 lines here. I'm sure you were counting as we went. The first one, praise the Lord's just an introduction, and then A to Z, if we did it in English. 
It doesn't impact the way we read the psalm. And I don't think it should impact the way we understand the psalm necessarily. So why even mention it? Three reasons I thought this was worth mentioning. First, I think it's appropriate and right for us first just to stand in awe of the beauty of what we've been given in the scriptures. Just, just for a minute, as literature, as art, don't miss the beauty of what's here. Is that most important? No. This is the inspired and errant word of God. But consider that our God makes beautiful things. And he inspires people to create beautiful things. So the same way you would look at a sunrise or a sunset and say, glory to God, he does all things well. Or the same way you would look at your body and the way God has created it to function and say, man, glory to God, he does all things well. I hope that as you're reading the Bible, story and poetry, prophecy, that you would look at it and say, Man, glory to God, he does all things well. For starters, I wanted you to know this is an acrostic because it's beautiful. Shows the wisdom of God. It's also worth noting that the next psalm, Psalm 112, is also an acrostic. Shares a lot of similar words. And based on their same structure and vocabulary, they probably are meant to complement each other. So we'll be in Psalm 112 next week. Psalm 111 tells us about who God is. Psalm 112 tells us how we should respond to God as one of his people. So the acrostic actually binds this together with the next psalm. The third thing, and I'll just let you have this one and you can think about it. A lot of people have suggested that when a psalm is written this way, it's meant to communicate fullness or completeness. So either the psalmist is saying all of God's deeds are worthy of praise, or he's saying, I want him to have all my praise. Perhaps that's being communicated here. There are things we can say for sure, however. What we do know for sure is that this is a person with a full heart praising a great God. Again, we see that starting at the very beginning. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright and in the congregation. So we get a little insight into the person behind the psalm. And we get the sense of wholehearted praise. He's not holding anything back. What's the heart? The heart's the seed of our emotions, our will, our affections. And he says, I, I want to praise him, thank him with my whole heart. All my will, all my desires all my affections, holding nothing back. And I don't want to do it by myself. Don't miss this. He wants to come together with the people of God in the congregation. Now, before I say this, let me say something else. I think sometimes we could be at risk, or at least when we're here, be at risk of underemphasizing private prayer and private praise in particular. I hope you don't reserve all your prayer or all your praise for this hour on Sunday mornings. If so, brother, sister, I'm concerned for you. Your heart should be overflowing Monday through Saturday and Sunday afternoon with praise for God. So 
don't hear us implying that those things aren't important. However, what the psalmist is acknowledging is that there is something very special and beautiful and helpful about being together. To acknowledge, I'm not the only one. God has saved many. How glorious must he be to save sinners like that? I'm kidding. This, right? We can look around and we can share testimonies and we know as a church family where we have been. As we get to know each other, we know where God has saved us from, what he has carried us through, and we come together and say, look at all these examples of God's grace. We're praising with other people to know their stories and to praise God for what he's doing and what he's going to do. He wants to be with other people, specifically, he says, whose hearts are upright. He wants to be with God's people in the gathering of the congregation. He wants to join his voice with the voices of others, giving praise and thanks to God. Often, if, I, if I'm working here during the week and I need a break, I'll come and I'll grab my guitar and stand here in this empty room and sing by myself. It's kind of nice. It's always better when you're singing with me, though. There's something special about praising God together. We see here this wholehearted praise, and it's a testimony, isn't it, of this person's heart, but it also should encourage us to evaluate our own hearts. Let me ask the obvious questions. Is there any sense in which this idea of wholehearted praise describes you? I'm not asking you if you raise your hands. I'm not asking you how loud or how well you sing. Does this sense of wholehearted praise describe your heart? Do you find yourself eager to thank him, to praise him? How about this? How much do you look forward to coming here and being with God's people? And if, perchance, we're not together or you can't be with us, is there any sense of missing that? Because I think there should be. We should miss the opportunity to be with God's people singing God's praises. Questions worth considering. And maybe you hear those and you think, I'm just not that kind of person. And what I want to suggest is what the psalmist is saying goes beyond exuberant expressions. It's deeper than that, isn't it? And we see that as we keep going. We see that his praise isn't fluffy. His praise isn't superficial. It's built on who God is. And that's what we get in verses 2 to 9. He's describing God. If you like to think in terms of outlines of questions being answered, the question we'll be answering is, what is it that can produce within us wholehearted praise? What, what could produce that? get the answer starting in verse 2. He says, Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. Now, I encourage you sometimes to read with a, a pen or read with a highlighter. I don't like to write my Bible, so I have to print it out. Do it that way. Anyways. Um, but if you went through and underlined repeated words, the word that's used the most is going to be works. And the other one is forever or ever and ever. 
what we see here is praise for what God has done and that it continues throughout all time. He starts talking about the work of God there in verse 2, and he says it's great. Great are the works of the Lord, full of splendor and majesty. Okay, so what are his works? He hasn't told us yet, but I've read ahead. He's talking about the works that he does in salvation, particularly the work that he's done in leading the nation of Israel out of slavery and giving them the promised land. So that's where we're headed. He's praising God for the work he's done on behalf of his people and that what he's done hasn't been finished, but it continues forever. His promises, his covenants are forever. And notice what he says there at the end of verse 2. He says, studied by all who delight in them. It's a tricky verse, and I read different translations, and it's hard to know where the emphasis is. So the, the question is, is there joy or delight to be found in studying the work of God? Or do we study the work of God because we found joy or delight in what he's done? Slightly different. I think it's true either way. As those who know what he's done, we should find joy in pondering and thinking about and rehearsing his works. And as we ponder and try to understand it, it should bring us joy and delight. We'll get to the details of what we're pondering in just a minute, but verse 3, he says it's full of splendor and majesty. When he thinks about the, word of, the works of God, they're not just good. They're not great. They have splendor and majesty. Nothing average about the work that God has done. And part of what makes it worthy of that distinction is that everything is governed by his never-ending righteousness. You see that in verse 3? His righteousness endures forever. And there's enough right there in that one phrase to keep us busy for the rest of the day. What does that mean? His righteousness endures forever. Everything that God does is right. Everything God does is just. That has always been true, and it will always be true. Think about that. Everything God does is right. Everything he has done is right. Everything he will do is right. That should enable us to go to bed at night and close our eyes and go to sleep. Because our world is being governed by one for whom everything he does is right and just. Which means you can trust him with the things in your past that you don't understand. Everything he does is right. All his ways are just. Does that mean that the things in your past are good? Not necessarily. But we can trust him with those things. And everything that's to come, you can trust him with your future, with the future of your kids, with the future of your parents. Because everything he does is right and just and good. There's a lot of hope there. Should give us a sense of peace. In verses 2 and 3, we get kind of some general statements about the works of God. They're great. They're full of splendor. They're full of majesty. He's righteous. And that undergirds everything else we're going to see. We see a transition in verse 4 where he starts to describe more specifically the works. 
And I'll admit, I didn't see this pattern the first time or even the second time. It took quite a while. But the more time I spent in four to seven, I think what we have is a progression. He's telling the story through praise of the rescue of God's people. So think the Exodus, wandering in the wilderness, inheritance of the promised land. Think about that progression as you hear these verses again. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. So the psalmist is thinking back about the work of God. We were slaves in Egypt. God is gracious and merciful. He gives us things we don't deserve, and he does not give us what we deserve. We deserve to be slaves, but he has rescued us. And wandering in the wilderness, he provides for them, right? We see that in verse 5. He provides food for those who fear him. And he remembers his promises. He shows his power, and he gave them the land that he had promised them. He took them into the land of Canaan. The works of his hands are faithful and just. What's going on? He's recalling the work of God. And the reason I want you to try to see it is to see that this isn't random. He's remembering the specific work of God and saving his people. And not only that, but he's intermingling the character of God that allows those things to be true, right? He's gracious, he's merciful, he keeps his promises. Praise God. His covenant endures forever. He provides. Verse 4, he says, he's caused his wondrous works to be remembered. I think what he's talking about there is the fact that God has established memorials and feasts. What's he done? Not only has he done the work, but he's given them specific ways for those works to be remembered. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. So we think about Passover. What's Passover? It's the reminder, it's this meal that they would eat as a reminder that God saved us from Egypt. He passed over, he rescued us. God has caused his works to be remembered. And all of those works are reflections of his character. Again, verse 4, he's gracious and merciful. Verse 5, he remembers his covenant forever. He keeps his promises. Verse 6, he's powerful and shows his power in the work of salvation. Verse 7, he's faithful and just. The question I asked a while ago is, are you a person of wholehearted praise? And I guess the, the related question is, why is the psalmist that kind of person? I think it's because he's seen God rightly. He remembers the work that God has done. And not only does he think about what God's done, but he recognizes that's true because of who God is. And if God is that way and he never changes, he'll be that way tomorrow. Praise God. I think it's important, I hope you take time to read the whole of Scripture. We read the story of the Exodus, and this is a lot more than history, isn't it? It's an example of the way God interacts with his people, of his work of salvation. It's a story of how God always keeps his promises. It's a story of how God always provides for his people. 
we think about how God delivered his people from slavery, we should also remember this. I was a slave. You were a slave. So we don't only look back and praise God for what he did for the nation of Israel. We stand here today recognizing this is what he's done for me. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He is faithful and just. He always keeps his promises. Because those things are true about God, this is why Jesus came, isn't it? It was a fulfillment of his promises. When the psalmist says his covenant endures forever, that ensured Jesus is coming. He will finish what he started. This is why Jesus lived that perfect life, fulfilling all righteousness. It's why he died a sacrificial death in your place for your sins, bearing the wrath of God. It's why he rose from the dead in victory. He did it all so your sins can be forgiven, so that all who repent and believe will be set free from the bondage of sin. Oh, that we would remember his works. And, and friends, if you truly recognize who you were and what God's done, there's no way that doesn't turn into praise. And the longer you walk with Christ and the more fully you recognize it, the more your praise should increase. Can I read for you again the passage that we read from Romans 6? I just want you to consider again what God has done for you. Romans 6, verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? You were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, you also may walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly, I love that word, if you've died with him, you will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Today, spiritually, and on that last day, to eternity. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. You no longer have to be enslaved to sin. This is our story. We should be a people of wholehearted praise because we recognize that we've been given life and freedom in Christ. He talks about the grace and the mercy of God, his provision and his faithfulness. And the, probably the, the phrase that stands out to me the most is verse 5b. He remembers his covenant forever. We try to be good promise keepers, don't we? God's promises never fail. He who began a good work in you will complete it. We see the example of how God led his people to the promised land, and we know that God will keep his promises to lead us into everlasting life. He's recounting the salvation of God. So, we see the work of God in salvation, and then there's a transition, and we see the psalmist prays for the words of God, his commands and his precepts. So look at verse 7. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. 
God sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. So the previous section is about the works of God. I think this section is about the words of God. So his commands and his promises. Everything that he said is good. Everything he's commanded is right. And everything he's promised happens. So again, we think about the nation of Israel. He brings them out of slavery. He brings them through the wilderness. At Mount Sinai, he gives them his commands. And we see that his commands reflect his character. God's character guarantees that all he's commanded is good and right. We don't like rules, do we? Some of you like rules just so you can tell other people to follow the rules. But most of us don't like rules. They cause us to bristle. We bristle against the commands of God, but what we're told here is that all his precepts are trustworthy. What does that mean? It means you can trust that anything that God has commanded, as you obey, will lead to good. We don't always believe that, do we? Because we think, uh, seems like it'd be pretty good to do it this way. To be in that relationship, to indulge that sin. All his precepts are trustworthy. So we don't have to question whether or not his commands are good. We don't have to wonder whether or not it's going to lead us in the right way. Everything God has said has been, can be trusted. And this is, I think what we have here in these two verses is just a, a compacted version of what we get in Psalm 119, that long version, praising the word of God. Let me read for you a few verses from Psalm 19. So we've got Psalm 119. That can be your homework for this afternoon. Psalm 19, listen to this, starting in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than the honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them, there is great reward. Which is a longer and fuller way of saying, all his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He's praising God for his commands and the surety of knowing that God's commands can be trusted. And also that he has made promises and all of his promises will stand. So think about the, the covenant God made with his people, the promises he's made. And then we see in verse 9, he sent redemption to his people. Why? Because he has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. Again, we see all these adjectives, expressive descriptions. And if we're just doing a cursory reading, if this is just Psalm 111 is my psalm for today, I've got two minutes. I'm going to read it and I'm going to go to work. And you may just hear great splendor, majesty, holy, awesome. All right, we've got a good God. But do you hear the substance that's here? 
recognize this isn't just a, a fluffy, cursory praise. This is a praise that's built on a God who saves his people, a God who does what he says he's going to do, a God whose words are perfect and trustworthy. Verse 9, holy, awesome is his name. What the psalmist is saying, these adjectives are informed by an expansive view of God. It's because of all that he knows about God, about his works and his words, that he can say, praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. So again, I want to encourage you just to consider your heart. Do you ever find gratitude over the things that God has done for you welling up? Do you ever find praise for what God has done for you welling up within you? Do you ever feel the need to sing? Maybe you don't sing much, but maybe you feel the need to go to prayer or to tell someone else about the goodness of God. And I, I hope you know me well enough to my goal this morning is not to drum up your emotions. The reason these questions are relevant is because over and over in scriptures, we see that those who know God rightly do respond this way. So it should be a gauge for us. As we see what God's, God has done, we should respond in prayer and songs of praise, in proclamation and telling others and in worship. And I think for many of us, we spend far too little time allowing our hearts to be affected by the reality of what God has done. We should be a people who are constantly aware of his promises and what he's doing to change us. We see that introduction in verse 1. 2 to 9, talk about the works and the word of God. And then it ends. There's a little bit of a shift at the end. And what we're going to consider next week is it actually is a bridge between the end of chapter 111 and the beginning of chapter 112. If you look there in your Bible, it starts with praise the Lord and this, another statement about the fear of the Lord. But here's a psalmist who has spent now these seven verses considering who God is. And then he makes this statement that's so significant. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What's happened? He's paused. He's seen God for who he is. And he recognizes this is a God who should be feared. Now, what does that mean? It's not the kind of fear that makes us run away and hide. Some people say it's respect. I think it's, that's probably too narrow a definition. To fear the Lord is to see him for who he is, holy and awesome, to know that compared to him, we are nothing. And we deserve nothing. When we see him, we should feel the need to recoil and hide. And yet, at the same time, we recognize because of who he is, because of what he's done, we can approach him. So we see both these things. Almighty God, full of power. Sense of our own lowliness. And the psalmist says that the fear of the Lord, to have this right posture towards God is the beginning of wisdom. What's wisdom? It's different than knowledge. Wisdom is being able to take what we know to be true 
and to apply it to our lives. How do I get better at knowing how to take God's word and apply it to life? It, says, it starts this way. You've got to know who God is. You've got to see God rightly. You've got to relate to him rightly. And when we see God rightly and relate to him rightly, that's the first step down this road of living in wisdom. So if you want to live the way God has called you to live, it starts with this right perspective of who he is. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and all who practice it have good understanding. You think, I've heard this verse before. I must have heard Psalm 111 before. Or maybe you've heard Job 28, 28. Job says, behold, to fear the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. Oh, I must have read Job 28. Or maybe you read Proverbs 1, 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Or maybe you read Proverbs 9, 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Those are just the ones that are the closest. It's a repeated theme. We see this encouragement to see God rightly. And when we see him rightly, it should lead to praise. It's also the beginning of wisdom. How much time should we give, church, to seeing God rightly? The psalm begins with praise the Lord and it ends. His praise endures forever. Why didn't he repeat the same line again? Well, because he was bound by that acrostic, perhaps. Praise the Lord. His praise endures forever. And I hope that all, after all we've seen this morning, you would follow that with an amen. His praise endures forever because, can I paraphrase the psalm for you? We have a God who's great and all that he does is right, who delivers his people, who is gracious and merciful, giving us what we don't deserve and not giving us what we do deserve. He always provides for those who are his. He makes promises. He keeps his promises and he will forever. He has promised our inheritance and our inheritance is sure. He has given us his word and his word can be trusted. His commands are faithful and just. He is holy and awesome and all who fear him will grow in wisdom and good understanding. Praise the Lord. Sometimes we speak with hyperbole. We can use words like awesome and majestic to describe fried chicken and baseball. And I have. But I hope what you've seen this morning is that when we use these words for descriptions of God, it's not exaggeration. It's not hyperbole. If anything, our words are too small and too limited. And when we read a psalm of praise, it's a reflection of someone, not who just happens to have a really positive disposition, but someone who has seen God. And someone who we should want to understand, to see what they've seen and to know what they know. And when we do that, the right response should be praise. We're almost done, but let me ask you this. Maybe you're here and you're thinking, none of this makes sense. Sure, there might be a God, but I don't feel any sense of gratitude or praise. Maybe you've never considered that you don't have a relationship with God, but because of who you are, who, who we all have been born as, see, we're not automatically in right relationship with God. 
We're all born separated from him. It's only because of what Jesus has done on the cross that we can be reconciled. And if you've never been reconciled to God through Christ, I wouldn't expect you to understand what it means to have an exploding heart of gratitude and praise. And if that's you, I would love to talk to you more about what it means to be reconciled to God through Christ. Maybe you're here and you get it in your mind, but you're just not feeling it in your heart. I don't think the answer is for us to play louder music, although that might be fun. I think it's the same answers we would give in Sunday school. Friend, read the scriptures. Friend, go to God in prayer. Make a commitment to being with his people. And as you do these things faithfully, you will be strengthened in your fight against sin. You will grow in wisdom for daily life. You will be led to worship. Verse 4, we are told that God has caused his works to be remembered. And I told you the context of that, I think, is the memorials that God set in place so his people would remember what he had done. Well, since Jesus came, feasts and ceremonies and sacrifices have ceased. He came to fulfill those things. He is the final sacrifice, and he is our Passover lamb. On this side of the cross, we've been given a different sign of remembrance. And in just a few minutes, we are going to do like we do at the first Sunday of every month. We're going to share of the Lord's table. It's a way for us to remember and to proclaim that God keeps his promises. He is gracious and merciful. And through Christ, we have been forgiven. So I hope you see that what we're about to do is a continuation of what God has been doing in the lives of his people, reminding us of his salvation. As we eat and drink together, it's a way to say, praise the Lord, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. In the company of the upright and in the congregation, his praise endures forever.